Thank you all. Um, I've had such a great time here um, at the seminary, and I really thank the hospitality of everyone. Uh, thank you in particular to Professor Afagame and uh, Daniels and Pierce, who made the initial invitation. Um, I'd also like to thank Kenneth uh, who, and uh, Amy, who also were just very helpful in the logistical stuff of making sure PowerPoints and were here. And I had a place to stay, so thank you to them. Um, some of this is going to be just um, the later iteration of uh, what Professor Daniels talked about earlier today. Um, and I told him it was actually made me feel better to hear his talk because it means that I didn't just imagine the things that I'm seeing in the 17th century. So, so thank you. Uh, <laughs> I appreciate that. Um, Ethiopians hold a prominent, often paradoxical place in the 16th and 17th century English imagination. On the one hand, Ethiopians were understood to be a distinct people, a Christian people. On the other hand, the term Ethiop often served as a catch-all term for black Africans. In literary texts, the term could be used to designate blackness, alterity, difference, and geographical distance more generally. My full-time job is as a Shakespeare professor, so please indulge me for just a second as I turn to a brief example from Shakespeare. In his comedy, As You Like It, Ganymede receives a cruel letter from a shepherdess named Phoebe. After reading it, Ganymede says, why tis a boisterous and cruel, why tis a boisterous and cruel style, I style for challenges, why she defies me like a Turk to a Christian. Women's gentle brain could not drop forth such giant rude invention, such Ethiop words, blacker in their effect than in their countenance. The cruel style that Ganymede sees in the letter is marked by religious difference, gender difference, and finally racial difference. The defiance Ganymede identifies in the, in the letter is likened to a Christian, I'm sorry, to that a Turk would offer a Christian. The invention of the letter is then gendered as masculine, oversized in that, that which can only be invented by a masculine brain. And finally, Ganymede describes the contents of the letter as Ethiop words. The words are Ethiop in two different senses. They are black in their countenance, by which Ganymede refers to the literal black letters on the white page, but they are also black in their effect, defiant, like a Turk to a Christian, abnormal, and giant and rude. The first line, these few lines from Shakespeare's play point to one of my primary interests, how to understand the relationship between literal and figurative appearances of blackness um, in English literary texts of the 16th and 17th century. Ethiopians provide one example. Early modern knowledge of actual Ethiopians in Ethiopia problematized the figurative uses of Ethiopians uh, in the ways in which they are to signify absolute otherness and religious difference. Today, I want to consider not only what English Protestants knew about Ethiopia, but more specifically, how an Ethiopian representation of itself and its own religious and political sovereignty provided English reformers with a model for asserting their own political and religious sovereignty. The Kebra Nagast, uh, considered by many to be Ethiopia's national epic, provides us with a sense of how 14th century Ethiopians understood themselves, their relationship to God, and the divine right of the Solomonic dynasty. A primary purpose of the uh, Kebra Nagast, according to Harward, uh, sorry, Harold G. Marcus, is to legitimize the ascendancy of Emperor Yakuno Amlak and the restored Solomonic line. Most of the book is devoted, therefore, to the parentage of Menelik I. The Portuguese and Jesuits, the first and primary Europeans to engage with Ethiopia in the, 14th century, sorry, in the 15th century, thus had to confront an Ethiopia that understood itself as the new Israel, the inheritor of God's presence and favor since the time of Solomon. The Jesuits had their work cut out for them. To my knowledge, the English never sent an embassy or missionaries to Ethiopia in the 15th, 16th, or 17th century. But knowledge of the Keber Nagas in Ethiopia's resistance to Roman Catholicism became available to English Protestants through Portuguese and Jesuits' accounts of their engagements with Ethiopians. I am particularly interested in the way in which English uh, the English used Portuguese and Jesuits' accounts 
uh, of the spiritual and political defiant Ethiopia to make their own anti-Catholic arguments. As they do so, English reformers envision a Protestant Ethiopia. English Protestants saw Ethiopian Christians as providing a model after which Protestant England could model itself. And therefore, I can see, you see a synergy between our two, uh, our two conversations. And this despite the racial, cultural, and theological differences that existed between them. In my talk today, I will turn to the Kebernagast in order to lay out the ways in which the text asserts Ethiopia's religious and political sovereignty. And I will then turn to three English texts that span the 17th century. Ephraim Paget's Christianography, or the description of the multitude and sundry sorts of Christians in the world not subject to the Pope, first published in 1536. The anonymously compiled a brief account of the rebellion, I'm sorry, a brief account of the rebellions and bloodsheds occasioned by the anti-Christian practices of the Jesuits and other popish embassies in the empire of Ethiopia. That's from 1679. And finally, Michael Geddes's The Church History of Ethiopia, wherein, among other things, two great splendid Roman missions into the empire are placed in their true light. And that's from 1696. These works demonstrate that in turning to Ethiopia as a model, English Protestants assert, English Protestant assertions of their political and religious sovereignty unwittingly drew from a political theology that came from the Kebernagast. I will begin with the Kebernagast itself in order to provide examples of the kind of political theology that the Portuguese and Jesuits came across and that the English later encountered through their encounters with Portuguese and Jesuit texts. First, it must be acknowledged that the Kebernagas written Gaiz is a composite text, which, according to the colophon, was translated from an Arabic manuscript, which was itself a translation of a Coptic manuscript belonging to the patriarch of Alexander, sorry, Alexandria. Stuart Myrno Hay has argued that the Kebernagast was added to as late as the 16th century. And according to him, the claim that the Ark of the Covenant resides in Ethiopia uh, may date as late as the late 16th century. He provides three pieces of evidence for this claim. One, Europeans have described the contents of the Kebernagast differently over the centuries. For example, the port, uh, the Portuguese priest Francisco Alvarez does not mention the Ark of the Covenant anywhere in his detailed summary of the text. Two Ethiopian descriptions of, sorry, Egyptian descriptions of Abyssinia and the Solomonic uh, descent of their emperors uh, from the early part of the 16th century never make any mention of the Ark of the Covenant residing in Ethiopia. And thirdly, saints' lies uh, dating back to the 15th century also do not mention the Ark. These together lead him to deduce that, um, that the story of the Ark of the Covenant being taken from Jerusalem and brought to Ethiopia was written in response to the Portuguese and in response to the Jesuits. Um, I am not particularly interested um, in whether or not the Ark of the Covenant currently resides in the Church of Our Lady of Mary of Zion and Axiom, but if Myrno Hayes is correct, the arrival of the Portuguese and then the Jesuits seems to necessitate the divulging of a long-held secret. Ethiopia's resistance to Roman Catholicism seems to require the Ethiopians to assert that it, is now, that it now owns the Ark of the Covenant and that God has ordained it to be so. Regardless of when the story of the Ark appears, the story of, the, of, of Solomon and the Queen of Sheba does appear in the earlier versions of the text. And this story provides the foundation for a political theology through which the Ethiopian church asserted its sovereignty. In sections 19 and 20 of the version of the Kebernagast most known today, we see the following. Uh, and Denetos, the Archbishop of Rome, uh, said, I have found in the church of Sophia among the books and the royal treasures a manuscript that the whole kingdom of the world to the emperor of Rome and the emperor of Ethiopia. In the middle of Jerusalem and from the north thereof to the southeast is the portion of the emperor of Rome and from the middle of Jerusalem and from the north thereof to the south and to the western India is the portion of the emperor of Ethiopia. 
For both of them are the seed of Shem, the son of Noah, the seed of Abraham, the seed of David, the children of Solomon. For God gave the seed of Shem glory because of the blessing of their father Noah. The emperor of Rum is the son of Solomon, and the emperor of Ethiopia is the firstborn and eldest son of Solomon. These sections stand in opposition to, the Western, to Western Europe's understanding of its own dominion of the world and against, its and against its narratives of the peopling of the world after the flood. They provide a contrary ethnic theology, and that is a term used by the historian Colin Kidd uh, to describe the following. Matters of race, ethnicity, and the genealogies and relationships of peoples and nations were part of the providence of theology. The mosaic history of the peopling of the world established broad parameters of Christian orthodoxy for ethnological speculation. Ethnic theology, moreover, inevitably became politicized as it asserted who was and who was not divinely endowed with the right to govern. This type of ethnic theology is clearly exemplified in George Best's A True Discourse of the Late Voyages of Discovery from 1576. Uh, Best was an English explorer, um, most known for traveling in the 1570s with Martin Forbisher in search of the Northwest Passage. Uh, so here's a often uh, quoted passage from, uh, from, from Best. Uh, it, it is, or it is manifestly and plainly appeareth, or it manifestly and plainly appeareth in Holy Scripture that after the general in, an inundation and overflowing of the earth, there remained no more men alive, but Noah and his three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, who only were left to possess and inhabit the whole face of the earth. Shem, Ham, and Japheth, as the only sons of Noah. Who all, being, who all three being white, and their wives also, by course of nature, should have begotten and brought forth white children. His wicked son Ham, or Ham, disobeyed, and being persuaded that the first child born after the flood, by right and, nature, and law of nature, should inherit and possess all the dominion of the earth, he, contrary to his father's commandment, Sorry. Uh, he, contrary to his father's commandment, uh, while they were yet in the ark, used company with his wife and craftily went again, thereby to disinherit the offspring of his two brethren, for which wicked and detestable fact, as an example uh, for contempt to Almighty God and disobedience of parents, God uh, would a son should be born whose name was Cush who not only itself, but all his posterity after him should be so black and loathsome that it might remain a spectacle of disobedience to the world. And this black and cursed Cush came all the black Moors which are in Africa. So I think I, oh, sorry. Slides are out of order. That's what I meant to see. Um, best history is the modification of that given in Genesis 9, which accounts Noah's cursing of Canaan and his descendants into servitude. Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants, shall he be unto his brethren. Although the fact that blackness was read as a spectacle of disobedience is commonly acknowledged in readings of best, what has been acknowledged or seen far less is that the curse of Ham was used uh, to legitimize or dislegitimize uh, political rule. Best represents blackness as a sign of God's judgment, one that continued to be read both in the early modern period and long after, that was a constant reminder of a power struggle over brothers, between brothers over dominion of the earth. As manifestly and plainly appeareth in Holy Scripture, according to Best, the racial marker of black skin became a sign of God's judgment that was used to reassert the rightness of white European domination. Significantly then, the Kebranagas skirts the issue of the curse of Canaan altogether by presenting an alternative genealogy for Ethiopia. Not only, does Ethi not only does the Ethiopian emperor not descend from Ham, but as the firstborn and eldest son of Solomon, God has given him the dominion of the greatest portion of the earth. 
The genealogy provided in sections 19 and 20 of the Kebernagast is not the only one that is important to the Ethiopian understanding of its political and religious sovereignty. Equally important is the account of the Queen of Sheba and her encounter with Solomon and the child that is born of their union. When their son Menelik comes, uh, uh, the son Menelik is born, he grows up, and eventually returns to Jerusalem to meet and learn from his father. Solomon embraces him warmly, and the nobles proclaim, Blessed be the mother who hath brought forth this young man, and blessed be the day wherein though uh, thou hadst union with the mother of this young man. For there hath risen upon us from the root of Jesse a shining man, who shall be king of the posterity of his seed. Concerning his father, none shall ask question, and none shall say, where is his coming? Verily, he is an Israelite of the seed of David, fashioned perfectly in the likeness of his father's form and appearance. For we are his, we are his servants, and he shall be our king." The prophetic praise of Solomon's, by Solomon's nobles indeed echoes the words of the, of, the, of the angel to Mary in the first chapter of Luke, as well as the Masonic prophecy of Isaiah in the 11th chapter. A shoot will come up from the stump, the stump of Jesse, from his root a branch will bear fruit. Together these echoes to Old Testament and New Testament scriptures render Menelik himself as a type of Christ one from whom the earthly monarchs of uh, Ethiopia will be descended. Menelik, the type of Christ that he is in the text, is thus divinely sanctioned and appointed to remove the ark from Jerusalem and then take it back to Ethiopia. When Menelik tells his father, though he doesn't tell his father he's taking the ark, he's, his father has no idea about this, um, but when he tells his father that he's returning to Ethiopia, Solomon commands the sons of nobles to return with him. Many are grieved at the, them having to leave their homeland, but they are especially saddened by the prospect of leaving God, Zion, and the Ark of the Covenant. Fortunately, uh, Azarias, the son of a priest, has a dream. Oops. And thou shalt bring forth the tabernacle of the law of God after thou hast offered up the sacrifice, and I will again show thee what thou shalt do in respect of it as bringing it out. For this is from God, for Israel hath provoked God to wrath, and for this reason he will make the tabernacle of the law of God to depart from him. The narrative renders Ethiopia as the new Israel, a truth that even, uh, that even Solomon eventually accepts in the text when he has to accept that the ark could not have been taken except by the will of God. The Kebernagas then renders Ethiopia as the true inheritors of God's law as given to Moses, God's presence, and an earthly kingdom. The Kebernagas intimately links genealogy with spiritual and political sovereignty, patterning Ethiopia after Israel and then supplants it. Such an understanding of themselves would undoubtedly present problems for the Portuguese and the Jesuits that met them later. The Jesuits, or the Portuguese rather, first went to Ethiopia in 1520, hoping to find the legendary empire of Prester John just beyond the primarily Islamic North Africa. And the later Jesuit missionaries would attempt to convert Ethiopia to Roman Catholicism, a project they attempted throughout the 16th and 17th century. The Kebernagas asserted that Ethiopia, however, and not Rome, was the inheritor of God's truth and their inheritance was justified by genealogy. A political theology that linked race and genealogy with chosenness would not have been foreign to a strand of English Calvinism that made analogies between Jewish identity and Christian identity. I do not have time to go into those arguments today, but perhaps one brief example will suffice. Um, and I also make a shameless pug plug for my own book, uh, Becoming Christian, in which this is the topic of the first chapter. Um, so more to be seen there. But the clearest example comes uh, from, an English, uh, from an English Anabaptist critique of the Church of England's defense of infant baptism. 
In his 1609, The Character of the Beast, or the False Constitution of the Church Concerning True Christian Baptism of New Creatures, or Newborn Babes in Christ, and the False Baptism of Infants Born After the Flesh, John Smith advances various arguments against the practice of baptizing infants, including the rather amusing argument um, that God will, or that Christ will not be contracted in marriage with a bride or spouse that is underage. Uh, <laughs> and therefore, no baptizing of infants. Yeah, it's in there. Uh, <laughs> but uh, what is most relevant for uh, me today is the following. You are to know that the Old Testament was carnal taken from the elements of the world, thereby to type out and teach them heavenly things. And therefore, their church was carnal to type to us in the New Testament a spiritual church. So he's talking about uh, 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 the Jews at this point, um, that their church, uh, being the Jews, uh, was carnal to type out to us in the New Testament uh, a spiritual church. The matter of their church was a carnal Israelite. The matter of the church of the New Testament is a true Israelite in whom there is no guile. The form of their church was a carnal circumcision, a, car a carnal scale. The form, of their church of the, the form of the church of the New Testament is the circumcision of the heart. Their carnal church is the matter and form came by carnal genealogy. Our spiritual church in matter and form is in the genealogy of the faith of Abraham, the father of us all, all under the spiritual New Testament. Thus, if you would compare the type and the truth together, you should easily discern the sandy foundation of your false church ruined and your false baptism quite abandoned, who continue a church by succession of a carnal line. Smith's accusation that the Church of England continues a church by succession of a carnal line, this demonstrates that the Church of England's baptismal theology indeed could be read as linking race and genealogy to election. Uh, nowhere do English reformers explicitly say this, but what I see is that in Smith's Anabaptist argument, um, the English theology about justifying English baptism, this was like the logical conclusion of, uh, at least it was, he saw this as a logical conclusion of the Church of England's arguments. But what I want to address here is that there was a convergence uh, between an Ethiopian understanding of election through genealogy and an understanding of election through genealogy uh, that was at least held by some English Calvinists. Theological convergences were indeed important for English Protestants who turned to the Ethiopian church uh, and other non-Western churches to legitimize their own independence from Rome. In his Apology for the Church of England from 1552, uh, the Bishop of Salisbury, John, John Jewell, pointed to the Ethiopian church, which, according to him, like the Church of England, prays in a language that the people can understand. The English cleric John, uh, Thomas Beacon, too, cites the Ethiopian church as having similar practices to the Church of England. Uh, and he gives the example is that both churches give the people both bread and wine in the Lord's Supper. But, most, but the most extensive comparison between the Church of England and non-European churches occurs in Ephraim Paget's Christianography, or the description of a multitude and sundry sorts of Christians in the world not subject to the Pope with their unity and how they agree with us in the principal points of difference between us and the Church of Rome. Um, so this was first published in 1560, 1535. Uh, this is the 15. Uh, 60, sorry, 1636 edition uh, that I've used. The very title of the work describes its goals. But Paget states explicitly in the preface that his purpose is to, oops, all right, sorry, don't have this quote. <laughs> um, the purpose is to confute them that would impale the church of God within the limits of the Roman church and pretend that all the Christians of the world are subject to the Pope, but only a few Protestants in Europe. Uh, for here you will see that the church of God is not tied to Rome only, 
but it, that it is Catholic and universal, dispersed upon the face of the whole earth. Like Jewell and Beacon, Paget notes doctrinal similarities uh, between the Church of England and various churches in Africa and Asia. Um, so actually, here's a, a, a map that is at the very beginning of the um, Christianography. Um, and one of the things that is in the map, and he, this is, he, has a, he has all the continents on the map. Uh, he has a map for all the continents. But we can see in Africa, um, he has, you know, we have uh, uh, North Africa here. We have Egypt here. We have Ethiopia here. And he also notes the Congo, um, some Christians there as well. So, uh, in, uh, so even in 1635, there was this, you know, he had this sense that there were, he knew that there were Christians in various parts of Africa. All right. Uh, under the heading of uh, the Abyssinian church, he notes the size of Ethiopia, that it is equal in dimension with Germany, France, Spain, and Italy, and the emperor of Ethiopia hath more than 40 kingdoms under him. He is the most potent prince in Africa. The vastness of the Ethiopian dominion is what makes it an important example for the English reader to consider. Padiget also notes that the emperor is believed to be a descendant of Solomon, showing that Padiget had at least some understanding of the knowledge that would have come or could have come from the uh, Kebra Nagast. After this, he provides a history of the Portuguese in Ethiopia, beginning with the fact that the king of Portugal sent Francisco Alvarez to Ethiopia, and that Alvarez had written a book about Ethiopian religion and custom. And this is important because later on, he actually quite explicitly notes that Alvarez is one of the sources for his own knowledge about Ethiopia. He sort of eventually admits that um, in his text. After providing this history, Paget provides a lengthy discussion of points of theological similarity between the English church and the Ethiopian church. In a section entitled, How They Agree With Us, right? So, you know, this is all very, uh, very, not, uh, not very nuanced. Uh, How They Agree With Us includes this, uh, this list here. Paget elsewhere provides other examples of theological similarities between the Ethiopian church and the Church of England. But he also mentions two aspects of Ethiopian Christianity that were significantly different from those of the English church, namely the practice of yearly baptism and the practice of circumcision. The mentioning of these two rituals is itself interesting because these two, um, the the Jesuits and Catholic missionaries to Ethiopia specifically named circumcision and uh, the, the annual baptism, or practice of annual baptism, as potential things that they wanted to get out of Ethiopia. They wanted to sort of rid Ethiopian Christianity of. Um, so the fact that uh, Paget mentions it is actually quite significant, and we'll talk, I'll talk about how he deals with these two issues. Um, although the yearly baptism and the circumcision uh, so along with yearly baptism and circumcision, the Cardinal Alfonso also lists the keeping of the Sabbath as a prime uh, offense to true religion. Paget, in contrast, shows that he is willing to view these Ethiopian rites as legitimate cultural practices. Concerning yearly baptism, he writes that they do this only in the memory of the Lord's baptism, and that it cannot therefore be considered rebaptism. The defender of the Church of England that he is, Paget is careful to make the distinction between the practice of the Ethiopian church and the practice of the Anabaptists. Paget also notes that the Ethiopians practice circumcision, but he also explicitly states that they do not consider it a sacrament. Paget's non-critical stance on these Ethiopian Christian practices becomes noteworthy when we notice that just a page later, he lists Francisco Alvarez as one of his sources. I have not yet had the opportunity to read the Alvarez narrative, so this is speculation, um, and I will eventually get to that. Um, but I doubt that Alvarez was as accepting of these cultural practices as, uh, as Paget is in his text. Um, uh, knowing the, the, the history uh, or knowing something about the ways in which the, the, the Catholic Church was particularly, um, found these two things in particularly uh, problematic, I doubt that Alvarez would have been seeing them written about them favorably. Um, and therefore, I find it interesting that, you know, although Paget gets his information from Alvarez, he is likely also um, uh, explicitly sort of contradicting the Catholic reading of those particular practices. 
Um, nevertheless, it still can be said that Paget, even as he is getting his information from, from the Portuguese, he is using Catholic materials about Ethiopia to make his Catholic, his anti-Catholic arguments. So the next text, a brief account of the rebellious and the rebellions and bloodshed occasioned by the anti-Christian anti practices of the Jesuits and other popish emissaries in the empire of, of Ethiopia. Yeah, these titles are not subtle, right? They, they, <laughs> they tell you exactly what they think and exactly what they feel. From 1679 is a curious publication. The title tells us that what we are about to read is collected out of a manuscript history written in Latin by Johann Michael uh, Walsenbin. But the text does not mention the name of the translator or, or collector. We do know, however, that the text was licensed by the, licensed by the Archbishop of Canterbury in 1678 uh, in accordance with the licensing of the Press Act from 1662, which required all books to be licensed by the Lord Chancellor, Earl Marshall, a principal secretary of state, the Archbishop of Canterbury, or the Bishop of London. This book, therefore, has the official seal of the Church of England. In the preface, the collector contains, uh, so in the preface written by the collector, uh, we see rather standard, rather boilerplate anti-Catholic discourse. But we are assured that what we are about to read is impartial. Um, uh, I will refer my reader um, here we go. All right. Uh, I will refer my reader for, uh, for further satisfaction to the narrative itself that we may well be concluded impartial to that which concerns the Jesuits. Um, and the other popish emissaries, so I'm ahead of myself on the slide, since it comes from one of their own profession. As we saw in Paget's Christianography, a brief report uses Catholic text to produce anti-Catholic arguments. The preface to a brief report also explains why the English reader should care about the history of the Jesuits in Ethiopia. And now this is the quote. This is a truth which more than one age and nation have sadly experienced but none ever had more reason to abhor and deprecate than ours. Yet, the well-ordered government of our British church and state is not the sole object of Roman envy, nor that England, uh, nor that England been the only scene of popish cruelty, not to mention the known and memorable instance at Parsi, Piedmont, Ireland, and Ethiopia, a country little known and less frequented by the English hath felt the smart of Rome's malice, and bears fresh scars of Jesuit treachery, who, if they please to think it a commendation, are no changelings. But constant in their morals, having in all points approved themselves the same in Africa which they appeared at this day in Europe, a transcript as well of their present designs as their former plots against England being delineated uh, in this short history of Abyss uh, short Abyssinian history. Oh, sorry. Did the popish emissaries foment a rebellion in England so compass the destruction of our glorious martyr King George? The same they practiced in Ethiopia, not only to be not only to the great hazard of Adama Seged, but the actual ruin of Zad Dunghill, or Dinghill, lawful prince thereof. The collector makes expl explicit comparison between Ethiopia and England, putting forward that the history of the Jesuits in Ethiopia can be used to understand the actions of the popish emissaries in England. Because Jesuits are no changelings, uh, but constant in their morals, we are to understand that they have a standard operating practice, which is to overthrow political governments. The collector makes them, makes them uh, the Jesuits, responsible for the regicide, the execution of King Charles I of England, just as they were responsible for the downfall of Zaldenghel, the emperor of Ethiopia from 1603 to 1604. 
Uh, Zod Dinghill converted to Roman Catholicism in 1603 under the influence of the Jesuit uh, Pedro Paez. The country did not respond favorably, however, and civil war broke out and uh, uh, Zod Dinghill was killed in battle just a year later. Not surprisingly, this history, um, the history itself that a brief account tells, is primarily a story about Ethiopia's resistance to Roman Catholicism particularly highlighting struggles during the reigns of Zadinghel and his successor, Sisenios, uh, under whom Roman Catholicism was the official religion for just a brief time. In pursuance of the earth oath he hath lately taken, uh, Sisenios required his subjects to renounce their ancient opinions and way of worship, but the most part of them were so obstinate in their old principles and, and the sovereign so resolute to reduce them to the new that the whole empire, lately flourishing in peace and tranquility, which was transformed into a dismal scene of oppression and violence, being filled with blood and slaughter of its native inhabitants, insomuch that the number of sufferers in the quarrel of religion did not seldom amount to 4,000 in a day. But, to use my author's words, this method of drawing, or rather driving people by acts of violence and their infliction of punishment to the kingdom of Christ was not likely to lay any lasting foundation. For when the Catholic faith had been promoted and maintained with fire and sword, for the Catholic faith had been uh, promoted and maintained with fire and sword for the space of 14 years. Here we see not only, um, here we see and read about not only the bloodshed that the title refers to, but also see an example of how, according to the collector, Roman, Catholic, Roman Catholics themselves find fault with how they attempted to convert Ethiopia. Here the collector highlights the fact that even the very pointed critique, that this very pointed critique of Jesuit involvement in Ethiopia are the author's words. Um, but even as the preface tells us that we are, what we are about to read is impartial, we can see that throughout, the collector intervenes to point out particularly uh, damning words that come from, uh, from Catholics themselves. The Jesuits' involvement in Ethiopia is then contrasted with that of Peter Haling, right? So here's, here's, here he is from, uh, from just our last uh, lecture, um, who is uh, a Peter Haling, a Lutheran of Lebeck, who was committed to spreading reformed religion. According to the narrative, and this very teeny bit that I read about Haling seems to confirm this, confirm this to be true, Haling was the first missionary to Ethiopia. Now I'll put missionary in quotation marks <laughs> based on the conversation that happened in the last talk. So the first missionary to Ethiopia. Um, he became an influential teacher and doctor at the court of Sisenyos, the first, uh, sorry, the court of Sisenyos, the first successor, the emperor, Basilides, uh, who reigned from 1632 to 1667. But the narrative then takes an interesting turn. Hailing, and the circumstances for this uh, reminder are unclear to me in the text, um, but uh, Hailing reminds the emperor of the deceit of the Jesuits, after which the emperor establishes a penal law against the people of Europe or what country or persuasion, of what country or persuasion soever, forbidding any person bearing the, nat the native distinction of a white complexion to enter his territories upon the pain of death. This moment is especially interesting because it is the only place where skin color is mentioned. But the Abyssinians are not presented as being draconian in this law. Just after this, we are given the account of two white men who are discovered amongst a, amongst a, bunch, a bunch of travelers. They are then suspected to be Jesuits. But they are offered a choice. They can take the sacrament of the Lord's Supper in the Ethiopian form, or they can be killed. When they refuse to take the sacrament, their Jesuit identity is revealed. But what we see here is that it is the Jesuits' 
refusal, the men's refusal to eat the Ethiop, to take the Ethiopian sacrament, and not their skin color per se, that leads to their execution. At the same time, we see how religious difference comes to be understood as knowable through skin color. The issue of religious difference between Europeans and Ethiopians also explains why Haling too must eventually leave Ethiopia. We learn from the narrative that Haling lives happily among the Ethiopians, um, becoming rich and influential uh, while his time was there. Um, but eventually, Haling has a, 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 a moment of conscience in which he decides that he needs to speak out for true Lutheran principles. Peter Haling, in process of time being grown very rich and powerful, began to make public expression of his dislike of diverse Abyssin customs, decrying especially their adoration of the saints and the Virgin Mary herself as repugnant to true religion and the Holy Scripture. The Abyssinians petition the emperor, who gently admonishes Haling to be silent on matters of religion, or these particular matters of religion. Haling refuses, and then is ordered to leave Ethiopia. But Haling is then praised in the narrative for this action. Thus, this great man, was, man voluntarily relinquished Ethiopia, together with high place and interest he held there. All in all, at the end of a brief account Protestantism is victorious. Ethiopia has successfully resisted Roman Catholicism, and the Protestant hailing is praised as well. Although the narrative is somewhat critical of Ethiopian practices that too closely resemble Roman Catholic practices, the adoration of the saints and of the Virgin Mary, Ethiopia nevertheless stands as an important example, one to be studied and emulated by England. Right, and my final example. Like Christianography and a brief report, Michael Geddes's The Church History of Ethiopia, wherein, among other things, the two great splendid missions into the empire are placed in their true light, uses Ethiopia in anti-Catholic arguments and represent it, represents it as a model for England to follow. In the dedicatory epistle to the Bishop of London, uh, Geddes writes, sorry, the following book being the history of a church that was never at any time under the papal yoke, and which, when its princes, instead of being nursing fathers, struggled hard of late to make, uh, to have uh, brought its neck under it, never rested until it had broke the yoke of insufferable, uh, the insufferable yoke asunder, and secured itself from ever having like attempts made upon it again. In the, preface, in the preface, Geddes informs the reader that he spent nine years in Lisbon, during which time he had access to Ethiopian books. I'm oh, sorry, not, not rather. He had access to Portuguese books uh, on Ethiopia. And again, we see an English Protestant using Catholic sources to make Catholic arguments. And usefully, Geddes provides us with a list of the sources he consulted in Portugal. So this is, you know some work for someone to do, maybe me, perhaps, uh, uh, to go and see and uh, try to trace down and have a look at uh, the sources. But you know, this is actually very convenient because it gives us a sense. He tells us explicitly what he read um, um, in, for, for compiling his own history. Among a variety of others, Francisco Alvarez's name is listed, which, of course, uh, Paget also mentions as a source for his information about Ethiopia and his Christianography. The mentioning of Alvarez is also important because it was through Alvarez that the Europeans first were introduced to knowledge of the Kebernagas. And like Christianography and a brief report, the Christian history of Ethiopia notes that Ethiopia, uh, or that Ethiopians believe that their emperor is the descendant of Solomon. And I'm, I'm not claiming that, of course, that um, uh, Alvarez was the only source of this knowledge, because clearly he had access to a lot of Portuguese sources. But Alvarez does seem to be the text that's sort of um, uh, uh, a primary uh, place that these English um, writers turn to um, for their knowledge. But of course, as Geddes shows us, there are quite a few others. References to uh, the knowledge that 
Europeans could have gained or would have gained from the Kebranagas comes early in the text, the second chapter of the book. Uh, the first chapter of, book, of the book is a more general description of the geography of Ethiopia. Um, in the second chapter, entitled Of the Religion of the Habasins, we see the following. Oops, I did have that quote. Here we go. It is a constant tradition among the Habasins that the Queen of Sheba that went to visit Solomon was empress of their country, whose name, they say, was Makeda, and who, within a few weeks after her, she returned home, was delivered of a son begat by Solomon, uh, whom they named uh, Menelikar, or in this case, uh, Menelikar. He then provides the narrative of Menelik uh, returning to Jerusalem. Solomon, having received his son when he arrived at Jerusalem, with great tenderness and affection, made him change the name of Menelar for that of David. And having thoroughly instructed him in the Jewish religion and made him promise to introduce it into his empire, he dismissed him with noble presence, giving him also several priests and Levites to take with him to assist him, to assist him so good a work. Significantly, this count corresponds exactly with what is recorded in the Kebernagast, except for the fact that Geddes stops here. He does not describe the story that follows in which the Ark of the Covenant is taken from Ethiopia and brought to Ethiopia. The question is, did Geddes have access to this story? Well, if Myrno Hayes is correct, uh, that the story of the Ark leaving Ethiopia and um, moving to, uh, sorry, leaving Jerusalem and moving to Ethiopia did not happen until the late 16th century, perhaps the Portuguese documents that Gaetus consulted did not have the story. Uh, but that is not a question that I can, uh, not a question that I can answer today. Um, but if Gaetus did have access to the story of the Ark being taken to Ethiopia, perhaps he purposefully excludes it because he consider, considers it too fanciful to include in this history. Geddes himself notes that he has not provided a full account of the knowledge he has of Ethiopian traditional history. Um, concerning the story of Solomon and the Queen of Sheba, he writes the following. Uh, not yet. Upon which fable, for I cannot look upon it as others. They have much built, uh, they have much built a hundred more which are more fitter for legend than for history. So he thinks that the story of Queen of Sheba, he says it's more legendary than actually historical. Uh, that story is then contrasted with the story of the Ethiopia, of how Ethiopia uh, first encountered Christianity. It being a tradition among them that the eunuch that was first baptized by Philip the deacon was the steward of, uh, to their empress, and who returning home after he was christened converted his mistress and her whole empire to the Christian faith in the profession whereof they have since, ever since continued steadfast. Which story, notwithstanding I take it to be a, uh, of a piece uh, with that of the Queen of Sheba and her son, yet this may be said of it, that it hath a greater air of probability than most of the traditional histories of the first conversions of countries. Geddes likely finds this story more probable because, um, uh, because it corresponds or coincides with the story from Acts 8. But what is important here is that in spite of what Geddes considers to be the fabulous nature of Ethiopian traditional history, Ethiopian history is still worthy to be read by English Protestants. In the rest of the book, Geddes, like the other two authors I have discussed today, covers both political and theological resistance to Rome. And like Christianography and a brief account, a Christian history of Ethiopia also finds the Ethiopian rituals of circumcision and annual baptism noteworthy. And also, like these two other texts, Geddes notes these differences without condemning them, suggesting that, the difference, that these differences are important, but yet not, essential, not so different that the English and the Ethiopian church cannot find similarity. And perhaps more important than these differences are the fact that both churches um, 
assert their religious and political sovereignty. Throughout the 17th century, England saw Ethiopia as an example to be followed despite racial, cultural, and ritualistic differences. Moreover, traces of Ethiopia's understanding of itself expressed through the Kebernagas are, transmitted to, are, are indeed transmitted to England, um, and they are useful to, as providing a way to understand how to resist Roman Catholicism. The English use of Ethiopia in their own anti-Catholic arguments thus raises interesting questions when considered alongside racial and racist narratives about Africans and black skin that also appear in 16th and 17th century English texts. Despite specific knowledge that Ethiopians were a Christian model that could be emulated, the once Anglican cleric Richard Crashaw, considered to be one of England's great Christian poets, wrote the following poem. Let it no longer be a forlorn hope to wash an Ethiop. He's washed, his gloomy skin a peaceful shade, for his white soul is made, and now I doubt not the eternal dove a black-faced house will love. Even as Crashaw's poem seeks to assert that Africans too can be Christian, its insistence on using black skin as a metaphor for sin and non-Christian identity relies on ignoring the fact that Ethiopians were Christians before the inhabitants of Britannia were. It is clear in this poem that Crashaw is less interested in Christian history and actual Ethiopians than he is in his own poetry and his own use of metaphor. Crashaw's poem requires that acknowledging the history of African Christians be ignored. And unfortunately, Crashaw was not the only one to ignore this history. Nevertheless, the English knowledge of Ethiopia shows that English attitudes about Ethiopians and about Africans indeed varied quite extensively in the period. And the English writers I've discussed today show that they may have unwittingly adopted African ideas in their projects to resist Roman Catholicism. Thank you.